We're going to spend a few minutes this morning looking at what it means to be firstly always full of grace, and then secondly, seasoned with joy. Is that okay? The answer is yes, Jamie, because you've got the microphone, and I'm half asleep anyway, so you just rock on. Amen. Okay, so number one, full of, always full of grace. So as Christians who have been saved and transformed and empowered by grace, we are well aware of the power of grace. Yet the sad reality is that Christians are seen in the world predominantly as ungracious. They're seen as being graceless and judgmental and intolerant. And that's not just a statement that I've whisked from thin air. That's backed up by writing and research and questioning. What do you think about Christians? And if Christians really are perceived to be ungracious, it makes you wonder, how, how did it come to that? Where did we go wrong? Put it like this, how did a savior like him produce followers with a reputation Here's the conundrum. Sinners ran towards Jesus and not away. The irony, the irony is the worse people felt about themselves, the more likely they were to see Jesus as being a safe place. Historically, that has not always been the relationship between Christians and the church and people neck deep in their sin. Way. When was the last time a prostitute poured anointing all over your hair and wiped your feet? Wiped her feet, your feet. Anyway, that was off the script. Down the script. Church is here's a statement. Church is supposed to be a haven of grace in a world of ungrace. In a world that's dog eat dog. That's full of outrage. That's increasingly polarized, in a world that just does not know what to do with sin and wants to cancel anyone who doesn't agree with them, in a world that will build you up and knock you down without a care. But the church should be the exact opposite. The church should be a haven of grace. It should be a refuge. It should be a shelter. It should be a safe now, I, I think it's fair to say, in general, the reputation, I think, the reputation Christianity has of being ungracious actually is pretty unfair. I would say Christians are no more ungracious than anybody else, certainly than other world religions, certainly than other ide ideologies or, or some of those strongly pushed agendas that we are bombarded with. But you know what? As Christians, we stand for Christ. That sets the bar pretty high. You see, here's a statement. Jesus stood for and taught and demonstrated radical, extraordinary, life-changing grace. It's what he stood for. It's what he taught. It's what he demonstrated. Radical, extraordinary, unexpected, undeserved, life-changing grace. And we should have known, John 1 verse 14, Jesus is introduced as 
the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, my reckoning that that big statement I just made is, is confirmed by four proofs, four evidences of Jesus and grace. The number one is that Jesus' teaching was revolutionary. He shifted the default position from an eye to an eye to turn the other cheek. He taught that we were to love our enemies and bless those who curse us and pray for those who persecute us. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So number one, his teaching was revolutionary. Number two, he told lavish stories of grace. Stories that to the natural ear just didn't make sense. I mean, let's face it, why would you leave 99 sheep, the sensible ones, to go after the one dopey one that ran off and got lost? Why would you kill the fattened calf for the errant, sinful, rejecting prodigal son rather than the faithful one who stayed at home doing the right thing? But, but those stories told us everything about the father. And the amazing thing about those stories is there was no catch. There's no exclusion clause. Just pure, unadulterated grace. Third proof or evidence about Jesus and grace is, is, is in his actions, Jesus acted out grace. Think about two of my favorite stories, the woman caught in adultery. Think about Zacchaeus the tax collector, peering down from that sycamore tree. What did Jesus give them? He gave them pure, unadulterated grace. Did they deserve it? No. Did they expect it? No. Did they get it? Yes. Did it change their lives? Absolutely did. The Pharisees, of course, were shocked at when and how and to whom Jesus displayed. And the fourth evidence for Jesus' grace is, is what Jesus confronted. Jesus ruthlessly attacked the judgmental voices of religion. Those people who insisted on, on fastidious, extreme legalism, ritual, compliance for everyone else, but who were themselves self-righteous and hypocritical and mercy. That's what Jesus stood for. That's what we should be known for. Grace should be our defining characteristic. It should be our default response. It should be our reputation. It should be our aroma. And it should be our culture. But I think in... In pursuit of that, I, I think it's fair to say that we have factors that are working for us. We also have factors working against us. And working for us, we're all testimonies of grace. Secondly, our, our, our inspiration leader was and is the personification of grace. That's working for us. But working against us is the fact that that grace will be tested 
everywhere we go. The world is a messy place. People are difficult. Actually, of course, they're outsiders. People are difficult. The issues that we face are complex. There are tensions that we need to balance everywhere we look. How, for example, do we balance grace on one hand and truth on the other? Those things that we desperately believe in that are being offended by the people right in front of us. How do we, how do we exercise discernment and yet avoid judgment? What do we do with inclusion and tolerance and modern morality? What do we do with that? Do we speak up and risk being alienated or, or cancelled? Or do we stay quiet and be accused of being liberal and cowardly? The fact is, those are not easy questions. If it was easy, as they say, everyone would be doing it. Here's the point. If we are going to be known for anything, let it be our grace. If we're going to be accused, Rick Warren said, if we're going to be accused of anything, let it be that we just showed too much mercy. If it was good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for us. Let your conversation, Paul said, be always full of grace. First of our kingdom culture values here at the barn is always full of grace. But what does that functionally mean? What does that mean in practice? It means this should be a place where people are allowed to be in a mess. And if they are, they should not feel uncomfortable within our four walls. This should be a place where people don't need to have all the answers or don't need to wear their Sunday best mask to fit in. It should be a place where people are allowed to fail. And if they do, they should be restored, not written off. This is a place where people who are struggling feel that they are being loved, not judged. Being helped, not criticized. They should feel intuitively that we are for them and not against them. In summary, this is a place where people should, should smell the sweet fragrance of grace. This is a place to which they should feel Invited. This is a place where they should be attracted. Like the sinners of Jesus' day, the church, the barn, we as individual Christians should be a place to which they run. What's our job? Basically, our job is to cultivate that environment. It's to propagate that kingdom value. It's to exemplify the behavior that Jesus for. It's to allow grace to transform rather than trying to use legalism to conform. What does it mean? It means we need to discern what grace sees rather than condemn what we see. That, that's to discern what we see with our faith eyes rather than condemn what we see with our natural eyes. Anyone can do that. And frankly, a lot of people 
that's our job. Our job is to walk with people along that difficult road because we were there once too. And you never know, maybe again. Our job is to do all of that and let grace do its amazing work. Won't always be easy. Might get messy. That's where we need the Holy Spirit to help us to balance grace and truth so that our conversations, both with believers and unbelievers, are dripping with grace, are full of grace, are easing with grace. Our challenge is Jesus exercised extraordinary, life-changing, radical grace. The challenge is Okay, moving on. Number two, seasoned with salt. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, I suspect you all know that, that bar owners have discovered that serving free salty appetizers like peanuts and crisps create a thirst so customers drink more. They don't just give you free peanuts because they love you. So with that in mind, the question for us is, what, what can we sprinkle on our conversations, so to speak, to create thirst, to create, to open up an interest in spiritual things? Put it another way, how can we shift the conversation from the usual kind of earthy, materialistic, temporal topics onto matters of the heart? How can we gently lift the conversation off the weather, which I appreciate might be hard for the next few days, onto a more spiritual dimension? How do we introduce eternal themes? How do we sensitively touch nerves or or needs that, that open people up? The good news is this is a skill that we can learn. See, it's easy to cultivate friendships. As Christians looking to outreach, it's easy to cultivate those friendships, but take them nowhere. I'll be honest, I've got a few of those that I've been working on for many, many years, but I haven't really taken them anywhere. A little bit frustrated. So how, how, do, we, how do we gently move things along? We all know people who are more like sledgehammers. Not a fan. Amplified, verse 6, let your speech at all times be gracious, pleasant, and winsome, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may never be at a loss to know how you ought to answer anyone who puts a question to you. CEV, be pleasant and hold their interest when you speak the message. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks. So the question is, is what can I do to introduce uh, into the conversation, what can I introduce into the conversation to to, to gently elevate it from the mundane to the spiritual? And I've just got a few quick practical ideas for you, and and then we'll pretty much be done. Number one, you can ask people, how are you doing? No, how are you really doing? In other words, just dig that little bit underneath the surface behind the off-pat, pet, repeated answer, 
I'm fine, thank you, how about you? How about asking people how they're really doing and attempt to open up their heart? You know, we know that, that, that a felt need is a great entry point. Trying to find out what hurts. Try, trying to find out what they lack. Things like that are, are universal and timeless issues. Second thing you can do is, is, again, to try and elevate that conversation off the weather. It's to ask a question like this. What is your greatest fear? What is your greatest dream? Moves the conversation, as it were, up a level onto something a little weightier. And, and it starts to open up people's motivations. starts to open up their aspirations. Number three. Third thing you can do is to tell people that they are loved. And if you're feeling really brave, you can tell them that Jesus loves them, maybe under your breath. The reality is everybody wants to be loved. Everybody needs to be loved. And you know what? That person across the aisle may well feel as though they are not. Number four, another one is you could ask, again, a bit of a dangerous question, how, how can I pray for you? you know, anecdotal evidence tells us that people rarely refuse the offer of prayer. Why? Because it doesn't cost them anything. Because I suspect they do a quick assessment and they conclude that your prayer probably won't make it any worse and you never know. How can I pray for you? Just a gentle way Slightly bolder, I guess, opening it up. Thought number five is, what simple seed can I sow? Not talking about a thwack with a sledgehammer. I'm talking about one simple seed that you can sow and trust the Lord. What did, what did Paul say? I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, only God can make it grow. Sow a little seed and just ask the Holy Spirit, how far should I push that into the ground? Idea number six is, is could you tell them part of your testimony? Probably not the whole thing. And the advice in there, as you tell your testimony, is to concentrate on your transformation and let God worry about that. Provide the evidence, as it were, of grace. And let that be the fault. And last one, number seven, this is for me particularly, is another way you can, you can demonstrate, another way you can elevate that conversation is to listen lovingly. The old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Keys, keys in this one, listening lovingly, is don't belittle their belief. And there's an assumption that they probably don't believe exactly the same as you. Otherwise, of course, they'd be in the barn on the Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. But you be very careful you don't belittle their beliefs. If you do that, it will automatically create a defense reaction and close that door. But if you can listen lovingly and caringly, that might just open the door a little bit. And then if you do feel inclined, as I would as a teacher, to make a point, Make sure you do it really gently, really kindly. 
Not another saying. People remember less about what you say and a whole lot more about how you make them feel. And so if you're listening lovely, if, if you listen attentively, aware always of the Holy Spirit on the inside, you can skillfully then steer the conversation in a way that might just open that door, that might just soften that heart, and that might just present an opportunity. Those are all ways that you can season, as it were, your conversation with salt. Ways that you can elevate them onto spiritual themes to help people to start to open up their hearts to the Lord. Ways of, of leveraging the opportunities that God places in your path because he will. He has promised that he will. The Amplified, verse 5, Behave yourselves wisely, living prudently and with discretion in your relations with those of the outside world, the non-Christians, making the very most of the time and seizing, buying up the opportunities. The message says, Use your heads as you live and work among outsiders. Don't miss a trick. Make the most of every opportunity. Kind of final words of advice and summary. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to spot and then to leverage those opportunities. Secondly, pray, pray for divine encounters. I was taught a prayer I've shared before. Lord, would you lead me across the paths of those people who need to hear uh, the words that I have to say need to drink from the water that is in my well. Would you move me physically and geographically across their paths? Pray for divine encounters. Do you pray for divine encounters every morning? Bring people across my path. Lord, open up conversations. Show me where I can be salt and grace. Another piece of advice, just sow good seed. Sow it strategically. Sow it sensitively. Oh, it's softly. Recognize that the Holy Spirit is the agent of salvation and not you. You know what? Trust that this is his territory and that he is very, very good at it. Again, we'll ask the band if they wouldn't mind coming forward. I'm just going to kind of pull this together. I uh, always talk about a response. It's wonderful to hear the word, but James said we need to be not just hearers of the word, we need to be doers also. So what is the Lord calling us to do in response to this? I've got three suggestions. Uh, questions, really, for you to ask yourself or to ask of the Lord this morning. Question number one is, are you full of grace? Have you let his amazing grace change your life? Does it show? You know, you are overflowing with something. The question is, is it the sweet aroma of grace? Number one, are you full of grace? Number two question, who are you praying for? You know, are you asking the Lord for, for open doors? Are you asking the Lord for divine encounters? Ask the Lord to show you where the soil is fertile. Ask him, ask him to show you where the fruit is low-hanging, as it were. Number two, who are you praying for? Number three is how might you sprinkle 
a little salt on that conversation. Perhaps there's someone that, that you've been building a friendship with, perhaps over many years, actually. How now could you shift that conversation up a level? Wouldn't that be a great question to ask the Holy Spirit? Okay, brilliant. So what we're going to do this morning is um, we're going to open up just a time of, of worshipful response now. Ali and the team will lead us in a song. Uh, the prayer ministry team are here up the front. At least they will be any second. They'll be delighted to pray for you. Anything that's stirring out of the message um, this morning or anything that's just burdening you today. One of our values is I, I hate for anyone to feel that they walked out those doors carrying the rubbish they came in with. Go out the door thinking, oh, if only someone had prayed for me. If only I could have left that behind. This is your opportunity. And as always, this side of the hall we leave open for anyone who wants to come and pray those big prayers. Ask the Holy Spirit those questions. Do business with God, as it were. You're welcome to come that side. What we'll do is we're going to sing. And then the song will ask Murray to come and tie everything up for us.